0: Good evening. Did you sleep fast? (laughs) I tell you, I could get used to this. I'm an only child, and I haven't been by myself in years. So I'm sitting in that house over there, just kind of relaxing, going, I'm not father, I'm not husband, I'm not pastor. This is great, man. You guys should invite me out more often. Well, as we will start tonight, I'm hoping that as I share some things with you, some lessons I've learned over the years, I hope they could be helpful for you. But before we begin, let's open up in a word of prayer. We're going to dive into God's word and then hopefully look at some pictures of things that can help you process your own life and the lives of people around you. So Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for this country where we could still stand and praise and worship you without uh, fear. And we thank you, Lord, that there are rights that protect it, Lord. We pray that you will continue to help us to have those rights and to continue to be able to worship you uh, freely in this country. We pray for those who would love to take those rights away, that you would work on their hearts, but that even if they don't change, that you would prevail and show them the power of your presence as you take care of your people. We ask now, Lord, that you would open our hearts to see what we need to see so that we could live out and practice what we learned by precept. And Lord, guide us to think about how we could serve others with this insight as well. And Lord, forgive us of every thought, every word, every action, every deed that has not matched you to this point. And Lord, we'll be careful to give you the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want us to look at the book of Proverbs for just a moment. And we want to build a lot of what we talk about tonight on Proverbs. Now, one of the things that you think about when you're doing exposition of Proverbs, Proverbs has... Two things that it basically does for us. It gives us a description of life and it gives us a prescription for life. So I want you to think about those particular things. But the first place I want us to look at is Proverbs 27, verse 19. And this is giving us kind of a description, which is going to help us tonight as we are trying to think through how to see things before we try to learn how to deal with things. As I have taught for over 28 years now in biblical counseling and just in the seminaries and around, the biggest struggle that I have with people is that we rush too quickly to try to do something with the information we have versus understanding the information. And I like to put it this way, we're not clear about the what, but we're trying to figure out the how. And I've told people for years, take time learning the what, and then the how won't be as complicated. The reason why how is so complicated is because the what is not clear. And so what I want us to do tonight is to learn a lot of the what, and really dig into the what, and then eventually the how will become clear to you as to what to do that makes sense. In Proverbs chapter 27, I want you to look at these particular words, and again, giving us a description. He says in Proverbs 27, 19, as in water, face reflects face. So the heart of man reflects man. And what this passage is saying is that your heart is a demonstration of who you are. As your heart is on display by the choices and decisions you make, every time you do something or don't do something, it is exposing your heart. Now, keep your finger there and go to Proverbs chapter 4 for a moment. Proverbs chapter 4. And let's look at Proverbs 4, verse number 23. So it talks about the heart is on display, if you will, as the water reflects, the heart reflects who you are. Proverbs 4.23 says something very fascinating for us. He says, watch over. Now, this is a prescription for life. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. See, The first passage helps us to understand that the heart displays who you are. The second passage is showing us that the condition of your life, all of where you come from, all of what you do or don't do, flows from your heart. And if we were to define the word heart... We're talking about your mind. That's where your thought process is. We're talking about your will, your ability to choose. We're talking about your affections. That has to do with your desires, your emotions. And so this text passage says, watch over your heart for from it flow the issues of life. All of the agendas, everything that we are dealing with in your life, in the lives of others, comes back to understanding your heart and guarding your heart. Now, pull that together and walk with me to Proverbs 27 for just a moment. I'm sorry, Proverbs 20. We just was at 27. Proverbs 20. And I want to find, and the verse says, Find me, I just saw it. It's coming, it's coming. There it is. Proverbs 20, verse 5. Proverbs 25. Look at that with me. Is that me? That is me. Ah, I can fix that. It's done. Yay. It's done. I kept thinking, why do I move? I hear something like, it's driving me crazy. I'm sure it's driving them crazy. All right. Proverbs 25, it says, a plan in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. Now, I put those three passages together because what I want you to understand is this. All of what we do or don't do comes from where our heart is, and we don't always understand what's happening in our hearts. This is why we need other people in our lives that can help draw out what's in us so that we can think clearly about it and then make the necessary decisions by the Spirit of God. That's why we, as the body of Christ, we need each other, because we all have blind spots. And those blind spots can destroy us if we don't listen. Even in Hebrews, it talks about, see to it that no one has an evil, unbelieving heart, but encourage one another daily, as it's still called today. I need you, you need me, because... There are things going on in our hearts that we don't pay attention to. There are things we've gotten used to, and there are things that we're just doing, but it's not a habitual form of behavior that's just behavior by itself. Behavior always comes from your mind, your will, your affections. This is why behavior modification is inconsistent. This is why when people talking about cognitive behavioral therapy and all those things, the reason why it's not consistent is because where there's a change of behavior and not a change of heart, there will always be a relapse. And that's why it can only go so far. Everything about us starts with our hearts. And the moment we understand that we need to guard it, we need to understand it, we need to work with God through it, and watch the transformation as we surrender, things can happen. But there's some things that we need to look at as it relates to the heart. There's some things that we need to process. And tonight, I want to walk with you through this. And I want to give you this phrase that I've been walking through with my students and my parishioners a lot. And that is what I call a biblical theological diagnostic. Okay, Can you say that with me? Biblical theological diagnostic. Put that at a dinner conversation one night. It makes you sound real intelligent. You know, as I was having this biblical theological diagnostic time in the Bible like what are you talking about (laughs) what I'm saying is we need to learn how to look at life through the grid of what scripture and theology shows us about all of human life and the struggles that many people have is that they don't have a biblical theological diagnostic of their life so when you take a verse like Proverbs 3 and it says trust in the Lord with all your heart And do not lean on your own understanding. Let let me explain what your own understanding is. It's a human observation without a biblical interpretation. And the struggle that we have, and many of us don't recognize it, is that we have had these horrible experiences happen to us. We've had these terrible things or we're going through these difficulties. But what's happened is we have given our own description and our own prescription for them And we're not looking at those experiences through the grid of God. An example of that would be um, when the two uh, spies or the spies went into the land. And remember, they came back and two out of the, and I can't remember the number, so you have to help me biblically. I forgot the number of spies that were there. But out of the spies, the two that said, we could take the land. The other said, no, we can't. And the scripture says they gave an evil report. Well, why was it an evil report? Because they did not include God in the assessment. They had a human observation without a biblical interpretation. They didn't say, yes, this is true. However, this is what God says about the situation. Part of my job as a shepherd, as a professor, as a pastor, uh, as a counselor with people is as they've gone through some terrible things, my job is not to minimize their emotions or maximize their situation, but slowly help them to get a biblical interpretation of it. I know this is what you're feeling, And I know this is horrible and we can't take that away as much as I wish we could, but let's take time to begin to see this experience through the grid of God's truth, not through the grid of your own assessment. The challenge for you and I is that we trust ourselves more than we should and basically we shouldn't be trusting ourselves. And if you're like me, I love a good Disney show, but Disney's model is follow your heart, believe in yourself, right? Right? I mean, every good Disney show, and I've had to cry on some of them like, I'm trying not to cry, but this is so good. But then at the end, they go, Johnny, I believe in you. Follow your heart. And I'm going, no, Johnny, don't follow your heart. You know what the Bible says about that? The Bible says he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. But he who walks wisely will be delivered. We're not to believe in ourselves and follow our hearts. That's what got us in the trouble we're in now, which is why we need a Savior. We've been believing in ourselves way too much and following our hearts. But those are the kind of things that we have to begin to see and have a diagnostic tool to evaluate and to pull it together to guide people slowly and patiently if they're willing to think these things through. So with that in mind, I want us to talk about a theological, biblical diagnostic, if you will, or a biblical theological diagnostic for how to see people in circumstances. Now, if you look at that first chart, I want to walk through that chart with you. This is a basic tool I've learned over the years through scripture and working in counseling, looking at ministry. And where I have people in circumstances, I now want to talk about those six Ps that I mentioned earlier. I've been teasing it out a little bit. But I want you to write them down somewhere because I want you to think about it. Some of you may remember them, the six Ps. Let's put them together. Number one, people. People. Number two, past. Number three, parents. What's the first three? What's the first one? Second one. Third one. Number four, pressures. Pressures. Number five, pain. Pain. And then number six, problems. So, can you tell me the six P's of life that we tend to discuss? What's the first one? Second one. Third one. Fourth one. Fifth one. And number six. How many conversations have started with that? And what I hear all the time is, Pastor, you don't understand because of the people that I'm dealing with is the reason why I'm not obeying God or disobeying God. Pastor, you don't understand. My past and all that's happened in my past is the reason why I'm not obeying God or can't obey God. We can go on and on and on. Does that make sense? And what they're trying to say is, these are the reasons why I do or don't do. And I say to them in a very loving way, Hogwash. In the Greek, that means you're crazy. But no, I don't say that. (laughs) What I do in a very respectful way is help them to see that the people, the past, the parents, the pressures, the pains and problems of life don't cause you to make decisions. The people, the past, the parents, the pressures and pains and problems of life are the context in which you make decisions. And those decisions are not based upon those six P's. They're based upon the condition of your heart. That's where that Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 that we talked about earlier comes in. When When the Bible says, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man, that he shall. Notice what it didn't say. Be not deceived. The reason you feel the way you do, the reason why you are the way you are, the reason your life has turned out the way it's turned out is because of the people the past, the parents, the pressures and pains and problems of life. And so you have a right to feel and be the way you are because that's the reason why your life is the way it is. Is, is that what that text says? It says, be not deceived. God has not mocked whatever a man that he shall reap. Then it gives you the context. It breaks it out. If you sow to the flesh, you shall from the flesh reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. So what I want you to understand is... You have been dealing with the people in your life, the past, the parents, the pressures, the pains and problems, either in your flesh or by God's spirit. That's not complicated, is it? People say, but you don't understand. I've got some people in my life. They're terrible. You know what? I am not doubting how terrible the people are in your life, but the people in your life didn't cause you to hit them with the frying pan or to speed off or to yell out those curse words or to take those drugs or whatever you want to tell me, they didn't do that. They were the context in which you made choices and the choices you made exposed the condition of your heart. Yeah, but my parents didn't love me well. You know what? I'm sure that they didn't love you well. I won't take that from you. But my answer or question to you is this, did you love them well? Well, I was just a child, okay? So in just being a child, how did you respond to them? And what's different in your response now that you're an adult? You were stubborn then and you're stubborn now. In order to be old and stubborn, you have to be what? In order to be old and foolish, you have to be what? You don't grow out of sin. You grow in sin. Sin has to be confessed, repented, and replaced. You didn't just get this way. You've been this way, and it's been exposing your heart. Now, that's hard for a lot of people because they want to blame the six Ps for their life situations. Not true. It's the context by which you make choices which exposes the condition of your heart, which brings me back to what I said earlier with the teabag, and I want to just bring that back around. Remember, we talked about that teabag. It doesn't matter what flavor it is. When you put it in water, the water brings out what's in the teabag. People, past, parents, pressures, pains, and problems in life is the water to your life, and you are the teabag. They're not making you who you are. They are exposing where you are. And the choices you make are not dictated by these things in your life. Now, why is that important for us? Because the culture has psychologized us. And we have bought into this idea that the condition of my life is based upon external things beyond my control. What a mean God to have if your life can't change until somebody else changes. What a mean God to put you in a position where in order for you to be okay, the people, the past, the pressures, the pains and problems have to change for you to be okay. What a mean God, because what if it never changes? But the God we serve, the God of reality, has never allowed the condition of your soul to be determined by external factors, ever. So that's freedom, but that's also responsibility. And too often I've heard people use excuses for those things when they should be making confessions to how they chose to respond. And that is central when we start to look at the conditions of the heart and how we handle the issues of the heart. Does that make sense, everybody? Now, if we don't do this, then we believe that we are victims and slaves to the attitudes and actions of others, and we're not. We are victims and slaves to the conditions and the stubbornness of our own souls, and God even has a way of escape for all of that if we're willing to surrender ourselves to his will, his way, his word, his righteousness, his life for us. You say, but is that going to stop my husband or my wife or my children or my family members or whomever from... Be-? No, they may stay just the way they are because the condition of your life was never based upon the attitudes and actions of others or people past parents. They have just been the avenue expose you. With that information alone, as I sit with people and they want to tell me their stories, and I listen for hours to many different stories, I'm already categorizing, oh, they're talking about the people, the past, the parents, the pressures, the pains, the problems in life, I'm hearing it all, and then they're coming with the big, and that's why I blank. That's why I don't blank. No, that's not why. I don't tell them that because I go a long way around with people. To slowly guide them to see these things, not just tell them up front. Because it takes time for people to process and say. Imagine if God were to tell you everything about yourself up front. Could you handle it? So why do you think other people can handle it if you tell them everything up front? That's not loving. That's judgmental. That's sometimes being a bully, you know? I've got all this information I'm going to tell you about yourself, and I'm just going to throw it at you. Well, then you don't understand how people function. You don't even think about how you function. You don't like anybody telling you everything about you up front. You have to deal with people slowly and carefully because they're not a project to be fixed. They are a person to be loved. And when you love on a person, you take time with the person and you allow God to work on them accordingly. But if they're a project to fix, that's more about your agenda and less about them. But if we understand just that little bit alone... It begins to change the trajectory of how we see things. So as I've been doing, I've said a lot, a little bit of time, two-minute commercial break. See how much you can repeat back to the other person what I've just said and ask the so what question in the midst of that. I'm going to give you three minutes, all right? How's that? Three whole minutes. Talk as fast as you can to each other. Here's what he said. Here's the so what. What's next? Let's see what's next. Take three minutes. All right, guys, as we are trying to build what I call a biblical theological diagnostic, how to see, one of the first things I want you to look at is this chart before you, and I had the people and circumstances, but you can add in there the six Ps, because that's basically what we're talking about. As you study the Old and New Testament, you will discover that we have three basic responses to all of life situations, and what's beautiful about that is, as you are listening to people no matter what they talk about, there's only three basic responses to all of life's situations. The first response I want to talk about is what we call a neutral response. A neutral response, if we were to put it to a definition, it's something that is not prohibited from God for you to have or commanded by God for you to have. That's what we mean by neutral. It's not prohibited nor is it commanded, but it is a response that you walk in. So when we talk about neutral response, it's demonstrating and expressing a happiness, a sadness, a disappointment, an embarrassment, or a hurt that does not violate scripture. The normal expressions of life that God does not hold against you is wrong. These are neutral responses. I'm not trying to tell someone, don't be disappointed, don't be embarrassed, don't be sad, okay? These are neutral responses to life situations. In other words, these are neutral responses to people, the past, the parents, the pressures the pains and problems of life. No sin involved. But please hear me well. Nothing stays in neutral. Did you catch that? Can you say that with me? Nothing stays in neutral. You will move from neutral responses to two other responses, either loving responses or unloving responses. Let me identify what loving responses would be. To have thoughts, motives, desires, communication patterns, behavior patterns, manner of life patterns, relationship patterns, or serving patterns we are commanded and empowered by God to have that demonstrate love for God and love for others. Or unloving responses. To have unloving thoughts, motives, desires, communication patterns, behavior patterns, manner of life patterns, relationship patterns, or serving patterns that are prohibited by God and are determined by the evil in our hearts. Those are the three basic responses you have in all of life. If we were to sit down together and you were to say, I want to share with you my heart about what's been going on in my life. You know what I'm going to hear? I'm going to hear what things? Can you tell me the six things I'm going to hear? You're going to tell me about what? And then, as you tell me about that, and you tell me how you responded, guess what I'm going to hear? I'm going to hear some neutral responses from you. I'm going to hear some loving responses from you. I'm going to hear some unloving responses. You're going to say, I was so disappointed when my husband, I was so disappointed when my wife, I was so hurt when such and such. And that's why I hit him with the frying pan. No, 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 no. We go from neutral to either loving or unloving. That's very important you understand that. And as I'm listening to people, they will describe how so disappointed they were, or how sad they were, or embarrassed. And then I hear what they did next. And it's either something loving, I prayed about it, or I just really just accepted the moment and just went on and did. Or, you know what, I was so angry, da 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 da. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I had cousins who they liked to play the scare game. You know, and I won't tell you what I did with the scared game, but let's just say this. I would go from neutral to unloving very fast. Or some of you, you know what I'm talking about, when you stomp your toe, you go from neutral to unloving in your thoughts, words, and actions very fast. And it wasn't the stomping of your toe that did that. That was what already in your, ah. Well, if I hadn't stopped my toe, I wouldn't know. It would have been something else later on because all that stuff is already in you. Stop blaming the people, the past, the parents, the pressures, the pains and problems. That's just the context. So what am I saying? All of us in any given situation, we respond neutral loving, unloving. And if we were to sit down and you wanted to tell me your story or you wanted to get counseling from me, I would already be evaluating because I know you're going to come. You're going to tell me about these things. And here's what you believe, hopefully until tonight. You believe that the condition of your life is based upon, can you tell me the first one? And, 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 and. You believe that's the reason why your life is the way it is, and so you won't skip a detail to give me the full context of these people. You're going to tell me every dirty little secret about them. You're going to tell me every nasty little detail because you want me to make sure I get it all, right? Because they are the vein of your existence, and so the problems in your life is because of that husband, that wife, those children, that boss, or whatever. And so you want to give me as much clarity as you can about those people because that's the reason why. And then you are going to want me to give you a formula on how, from the Bible, to fix what? Six things? Those? Because that's the real issue. So you think, and I'm going to listen with a smile, and I'm going to nod my head with you. I'm going to hug you from time to time. I'm going to cry with you. And when the time is right, I'm going to help you to see that that was the context to expose the condition. And those things didn't cause you. Those things exposed you. And we're going to begin to see that the real problem is that you've been bitter for years You've been selfish for years. You've been stubborn for years. You've had all these things in your heart a long time, and you just got to a place now where you're ready to hear the reality of where your heart is, and you're going to tell me about all of these six things, and you're going to want me to hear with clarity all the details of it, and you're not going to skip a beat, but you know what? When you tell me those things, it's like taking a picture. When you're taking a picture, who's missing from the picture? Did you catch that? And all your details, you're going to be missing from that picture. Because in your mind, you're basically a good person trying to walk with Jesus. And because you're basically good trying to walk with Jesus, the problems in your life are those things outside, and you're looking for counsel on how to get that fixed, because you want to be right for Jesus. Does that sound familiar to any of you? And here's the biblical reality. God has been using those things for years to guide you to see the condition of your soul, to show you just how unloving you've been in areas. And what you're going to cling to is, but you don't understand. Are you telling me that me being disappointed is wrong? I'm not talking about your disappointment. No, that's not wrong. I'm not talking about your sadness or the fact that someone has brought pain to your life? No. Those are terrible things. And we need to weep with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice. But that's not where you are where you are. You've gone from neutral to unloving. You've been bitter for years. You've been resentful for years. But don't I have a right? Well, let me just ask you a dumb question, you know, that maybe the Bible might ask, is there ever a right time to do wrong according to scripture? There's never a right time to do wrong. Do you have a right time to be wrong? No. So you're telling me that I shouldn't be hurt? Oh, no, I'm not telling you that at all. I'm telling you what you've done with your hurt all these years. You have moved from neutral to unloving. And it's not the hurt, because you can have peace from God and still be hurt. But the lack of peace you have is because you've been in the flesh, not because of the pain in your soul. I mean, wasn't our Savior a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief? But yet did he not have peace? See, once we understand what I'm sharing with you, it becomes very clear that when we get biblical about these things, the problems that we think are outside of us that need to be fixed is the context in which God is exposing what really needs to be addressed. And so part of my training of my team and training of my leaders and training of those in counseling and training people in the congregation and hopefully training you all is to first help you to see this picture. Imagine what would happen if you just started to j- not try to fix anything, not say anything, but just begin to take your life for the next seven days and said, you know what? Let me look at my responses to the people, the past, the parents, the pressures and pains, and let me just document what I see. You'll be amazed at what you discover, how you move from neutral to loving and unloving. And when you stop making excuses and you're ready to make confessions, you can begin to grow and change because now you're taking a good look at where you are before the presence of God. Listen, not what you know about the Lord, not what you've learned about the Lord, but where you are before him so that all of that good insight can be applied accordingly to your life. So that's the first one. Are you with me so far? Am I making sense to you so far? What we would do now, let's look at the second picture to kind of build on the first picture. And what we've done with the second picture, just think about people, past, parents, all the things I mentioned in our responses and what's revealed about us. I just added two blocks at the top and the bottom that I want us to explore. Not only as we're dealing with those six Ps that our heart's on display, that we see neutral, loving, and unloving responses. We also, in that, will learn about your expectations and desires of life. I know a lot about you by what's happening to you and what's taken from you because you're going to talk a lot to me about the things that you want that you're not getting and the things you're getting you don't want. And the more I listen to you, you're going to really unfold your desires before me. And if I listen long enough, you're just going to start telling me, because think about it. When you don't get your way, what becomes the bulk of your conversation? What you didn't get that you wanted or what you got you didn't want and over and over. And when something is troubling you, what comes out? What you expected, what you wanted, how you think you should have had, how hard you've worked. I mean, And again, I get to listen to you tell your story. And as I'm listening, all these things ooze out and I don't have to force it. What's the one thing that people like to talk about more than anything? And if you shut up long enough, they'll tell you everything you need to know. I'll never forget, I was at a friend's party one time. And, you know, I'm one of those kind of people where when I'm at a party, I'm not the life of the party. I'm the guy that sits in the corner, just kind of chat with people and just kind of chill and, you know, just kind of watch. This one guy, he came, sat down next to me, and I'm the person, I don't talk about me unless you ask me because I learned a rule uh, a long time ago in life and in counseling and in ministry. You really want to learn, people? Listen. And one of the assignments I give my students is, see if you can go seven days without saying anything about yourself unless someone asks you. Do you know how hard that is for us? But do you know why that's hard for us? Because we are so full of ourselves. If there's anybody we love to talk about, it's us. And so over the years, I've tried to train myself and train people around me. Don't say anything about you unless someone asks you. Listen. So I sat with this guy. I asked him a few questions. This guy went for two hours straight. I kid you not. Two hours straight. I could have been an axe murderer. He never would have known. And you know what he talked about for two hours straight? Guess what? Himself. And he got up and said, this is the best conversation I've had in years. And I kind of laughed like you did to myself and said, I'm not surprised. (laughs) But isn't that a sad reality for many of us that the one thing we want to talk about the most is ourselves? And what I've learned from that is, as I listen to people, they tell me so much that they don't even know they're telling me. Not because I'm that smart. But the more you understand God's grid about the heart of people and God's grid about how we react, as you are listening, you just start to see it and hear it, and it just oozes out. People ask me all the time, can you turn it off? It's like, I don't necessarily turn it off. I just don't pay as much attention. Because think about how many stories I hear everywhere I go around the world. You know what's interesting? It never goes away from what I've just shared with you. Any encounter I've had with anyone around the world, it's those six P's, it's those three responses, it's these things that we see here. And I just nod and listen, nod and listen. And I hope they don't ask, so what do you think? Oh, please don't ask me what I think. Now I'm obligated to tell you the truth because I don't want to lie to you. And a lot of times that gets me in trouble. So please don't ask me what, don't, don't ask me to tell you what I think. No, I'm just kidding with you. But the reality is the more you learn to see this way, you can't turn it off. It's a new realm of reality that exposes you to what God sees all the time. Now, let me make this plain to you. If I can see this, don't you think the evil one can see this about you? If I can see it as clear from Scripture, surely he can see it. And the more you are blind to it, the more you can be manipulated if you're not paying attention, which the scripture says, guard your heart, from from it flow the issues of life. So with that, let's look at the box at the bottom there. And not only can I see your expectation and desires, we've talked about the thoughts, loving and unloving, I can also see that maybe and I'm not saying this about you, but I'm just saying this in general as I'm going around the world, maybe a person, may not be a Christian who's professing but don't possess. And as I keep listening and listening, I start to see sometimes I've ran into a lot of people who have been in church but never come to Christ. Does that make sense? I get scared when I hear people say, I've been in church all my life. Ooh, that's a scary thing. But how long have you been in Christ? But I don't go there. I get around to it in subtle ways to try to bring it around. But the point I'm making is, as you listen to people long enough, just enough not to get your word in, but to actually hear their hearts, you can see a lot of these things. If you were to sit back and do an evaluation of your life over the last seven days through this grid, you could see a lot about yourself. And the more you do this, the more you can begin to bring this before our almighty King to do business with our Lord, our Savior, our God, with where you are versus where you thought you were. Now, before we go any further, commercial break, go back, look at the first chart, look at the second chart, think about the six Ps. Talk to each other about what you see, and again, ask and answer this question, so what? What does any of this have to do with me? So what? What does any of this have to do with me? Take about two or three minutes. Take a look together. We'll come back, build on this with a little bit more. All right, guys, let's take a look at the third chart. And the third chart is what I call the summary chart, the most important out of everything I've shared with you, the Life 101. And this chart, as I've learned over the years, and again, this is happening in my head when you're talking to me. So all these things that I have on paper, When you start talking, this automatically becomes the grid that I'm listening to as you're talking. Don't get scared, but I'm just, this is what's happened. And and I've been training people over the years to process information this way, the biblical theological diagnostic. So I have them get certain portions of this and that weeks at a time, you know, wax on, wax off first week or two weeks. I just want you to listen to people. See if you can identify the people, past parents, the six things they're talking about, and then I want you to see how they're responding. And I just want you to, again, just pay attention. Don't try to say anything, fix anything. Just tell me what you see. Once I feel like they've gotten it down, okay, I want you to keep listening. And as you're listening, tell me what you've heard about disappointments and expectations, desires. Tell me based upon how they are handling life. What fruit are you seeing? You know? And just have them to do that. Don't try to fix anything, but just process information this way. And then I have them to do this. And this to me is the most important piece, which will take us deeper in a moment. What people have not paid a lot of attention to are the things that they can and cannot control in life. And there are two things that God has made clear that we cannot control, and that's people and circumstances. But I want to be very specific about people. Because there are five things about people that you and I can never, please hear me well, because never is a strong word, five things that we can never control about another individual ever. And if we could master that, we will stop blaming other people for the things that we do. Because the very things that we're trying to say is their cause of the things that they can't control about us. There are five things that we can never control about another individual. Number one, I cannot control what you think. I'm thinking something right now. Do you have any power over what I'm thinking right now? Will you ever have power over what I'm thinking? You say, well, what about influence? That's a good question. Man, you ask a difficult question, guys. Can I tell you how influence works? You can only influence me when I like what you're selling. What happens when I no longer like what you're selling? It's cut off. Who controlled you influencing me? I did. Does that answer the question? You can't control what I think. You can't control what I desire. Now let that sink in. I'm desiring some chocolate chip cookies. Hmm. Freshly baked. No, anyway, I digress. So can you control what I desire ever? No. You can't control my thinking, you can't control my desires. You can't control my emotions. I'm feeling something right now. Can you ever control what I feel? Never. Here's the fourth thing: you can't control my words. Now you can punch me in the mouth, you can take my tongue out, but I I, I, can't. You know, you you can't control my words. Let's go backwards. What's the first thing you can't control about me? My, 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 my. And then I got to be very technical theologically here, very specific. And I use this word on purpose because this is theologically technical, my will. I didn't say my actions. I said my will. Let me tell you why. You guys could get together and lock me up in the closet. And that will hinder some of my actions. You guys could get together and tie my hands, and that will hinder some of my actions. But my will to escape My will to get out. You can never control my will. You may force me to sit down, but I could be standing up in my mind. That's called stubbornness, by the way. Did y'all catch that? (laughs) So there are five things about me you can never control. What are those five things? My, 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 you never, ever have control over those things about me, ever but what do you control? Any idea? Your, 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 your. Well, we have a problem now, don't we? Because who do we blame for our thoughts? Oh, the people, the past, the parents. Who do we blame for our desires? All the people. Who do we blame for how we feel? Who do we blame for our uh, will? Who do we blame for our words? We love to blame the very thing that the scripture makes plain that we can't control. So if what I'm saying is true, and we know it biblically is true, because if people can control those things, then when we stand before the presence of God at the beam of judgment, we could never say... God, you can't hold me accountable because this person made me think this way. This person made me say these things. This person made me feel this way. So, Lord, you can't hold me accountable for much of anything because it's the people. It's the past. It's the parents. It was the pressures. It was the pains of life. So, Lord, basically, I'm good. Does that sound theologically correct according to what we know as conservative evangelical Christians? God wouldn't have anything to judge. And ultimately, we'd get back to blaming Adam and Eve. Those realities are very important for us. So if what I'm saying is true, we have a dilemma. And this is what I tell couples all the time, because I let them fight and fuss and cuss before I teach them this. Because I want them to get into it. And I'll even push the button. Whose fault is this? Why are we here? It's <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> go on, keep going. And you're doing, you're, no, no, keep it going. And when I get tired, I'll put this out there. And I'll say, so then if what I've just said is true, then what do you control? My thoughts. Well, well, then, Billy, you just said she makes you angry. Well, she does. Well, no, 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 Billy, hold on, bro, hold on. Because you just said a minute ago that. You can't control this about her, and she can't control this about you. So then she didn't make you angry, Billy. You decided to get angry. Well, well, Wait a minute. You know, Helen, I understand you said he hurt your feelings. Now, your feelings are hurt, and we're not going to take that away from you because that's real. But, Helen, he didn't hurt your feelings. He disappointed your expectations. And in disappointing your expectations, you are experiencing the hurt feelings But who set the expectations, Helen? And who's responding to the expectations that were set? I'm not trying to take away your hurt feelings, and I'm not trying to minimize them, Helen. I just want you to understand that your hurt is real, but you can't blame him for the hurt feelings because then he has to change in order for your feelings to change. And the scripture makes it clear that your feelings are the byproduct of your own thoughts, your own desires. So, Helen, if what I'm saying is true, he disappointed your expectations. Yes, he did that, but you have those expectations that you can change at any time, which would then change your emotions, which would then change where you are at any moment. Who controls that, Helen? You do, Helen. Uh, Wait a minute. You, You said she gets on your nerves. She can't get on your nerves. There may be things that you like or don't like, but you have a choice of how you choose to respond and your emotions are following what you're thinking. So if what I'm saying is true, you guys have been yelling at each other for the last 15 minutes, believing that the other person is the reason why this is happening. But in reality, your hearts are on display because here's the thing. Every choice you make comes down to what's motivating you in that moment. And you really only have two ambitions in life. You're either driven by selfish ambition or you're driven by love. Yeah, but what about those neutral things? Oh, you've been listening. That's a great question. What did I say earlier? Nothing stays in... Exactly right. You don't stay there long. And you're going to be motivated out of your selfish ambition or out of love. So... So again, when you say she made you angry, Helen made you angry. She didn't make you angry. You decided to get angry. Why? Because what you wanted, you weren't receiving. What you were receiving, you didn't want. And you were motivated out of your ambition to respond to her this way. You had expectations of him that are higher than his character can handle. And he's not meeting your expectations because his character is not where your expectations are. The moment you lower your expectations and raise your love, you're going to be hurt less And have peace more. But you control that, Helen. And that's driven by the motivations of your heart of what you want that you're not getting, what you're getting you don't want. You decide the condition of your soul. Where is that in the Bible? I keep telling you guys, Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, be not deceived. This is one of the most important lessons I teach people because it is through this grid that I help them understand life. And so I'll give them some homework assignments. I'll say, now that you've understood this, and we walk through scriptures, so here's your homework assignment. I want you to write out some scenarios for me. I want you to write out some things that's happened between you or in life in general, and I want you to answer these questions for me. What was the situation? Well, me and Helen were riding to the store, we were going to the restaurant, okay? What could you not control about Helen? I could not control Helen's thoughts. Helen was thinking this. I could not control Helen's words. I couldn't control her emotions. Her emotions were this. I couldn't control her desires. They were this. I couldn't control her will. It was this. Okay? What could you control? I could control my thoughts, which were why is she always bringing this up. I could control my words, my desires, my emotions, my will, my feelings, if you will. So then when you responded to Helen the way you did, what were you motivated by in that moment? My selfish ambition. How by? Because I responded this way instead of this way. Huh. Imagine what would happen if people actually started to take inventory this way. This is what I teach people. This is life 101. No one makes you mad. You decide to get bad because of what's happening in your soul. Because if people make you mad, then people have to change in order for you to stop being mad. And what if they never change? Now you're stuck forever. You are a victim forever. Now we can all sing the victim song. Let's just all go get drugs and don't worry, be happy. But is that a biblical view of our existence? Is that a biblical view of our God whom we serve? No. This is one of the most important things. And when I'm listening to people as they're telling my story, they're telling their story, I'm categorizing. Here's what they could not control. Here's what they could control. And then when they tell me how they responded, they're showing me the motivations of their hearts. And I'm listening going, wow, that was selfish ambition. Wow, oh, that was loving. Oh, that was selfish ambition. That was loving. And I'm just... Putting it together. And they're telling me everything. They're starting back when they were five and going up to when they're 70. And they're like, I hope I'm not overwhelming you. Not at all. Because as they're talking and telling me all of this detail, all of this detail fits in these categories. And I could summarize it in two minutes, what they'll tell me in three hours, but I wouldn't do that. We take time over weeks to unpack the reality of what's happening in their lives. I have to teach them what to see and accept what to see and then lead them in what to do. I don't try to show people what to do until they first learn how to see. And when they can see, then we can focus on what to do. And until they accept the reality, I can't move in the transformation. I can't help them. They've got to really accept that this is what I cannot control, this is what I can control, and every time I make a choice, it's motivated out of the ambitions of my heart. If a person does not accept that, then what will I always hear? Yeah, but. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. Or you don't understand these people, this past, these parents, these pressures, these pains, these problems, and we'll keep going there until they accept the reality of every choice you make is based upon the condition of your heart. It's either driven out of selfish ambition or love because you could not control this person's thoughts, this person's desires, this person's emotions, this person's words, this person's will. You've never had control over those things and you never will. So every response you have made is revealing your heart. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. You guys see how powerful just this alone is if we ever sat down and just evaluated that alone? Take a couple of minutes. Look at that chart. Here's my question for you. So what? How does any of this apply to you? Maybe this is just my issue. Maybe this doesn't apply to you. But if it does then what does this reveal about today, the last seven days, the last year of your life? What does this reveal about the relationships around you and what God has been trying to show you through those relationships for a very long time? Take about two, three minutes. We'll come back. We'll build on this chart with a little bit more, a little bit more, just a little bit more, a little bit more. All right. Take a few moments. All right, guys. This is like a fire hose. I'm throwing a lot at you. I'm giving you in an hour what I normally do in 10 to 12 weeks with someone I'm counseling. So that's probably why you're feeling the way you're feeling. (laughs) Because, again, I try to take the time to just unpack it. Here's the number one thing I've learned people don't accept that, you're wasting your time with the rest of counsel. If people don't accept what they can and can't control, and that their choices are driven by their own motivations, you're going to always go around and around and around and around and round. You're always going to hear the yeah, but. You're always going to hear the people, the past, the pressures. Why? Because they refuse to accept that the condition of their soul is dictated by their own hearts. In other words, the choices they make are dictated by the condition of their soul, not the people, the past. and and again, you're going to hear it. And this is why I've learned over the years, if we can't get there, it's a loss. Because as soon as I say something, yeah, but what about him? Yeah, but what about her? Yeah, but what about those people on my job? Yeah, but what about my parents? Yeah, but it'll always be something needs to happen outside of me before I'm willing to do something inside of me. Because they are that is the reason why I. And that is biblically incorrect. This is why it is futile to try to give people scriptures to practice before you give them a reality from Scripture of how to see. Does that make sense? This is what I mean by a biblical theological diagnosis. You've got to show people what to see and accept before you can guide them in what to do to make changes. Because in their minds, it's useless. It's futile. Why do you want me to put this off and put this on? Why do you want me to start doing this and stop? Because God is sovereign. I don't want to hear that God is sovereign. See, the reality is people in pride can accept... The supremacy of Jesus Christ. People don't first need hope who are in sin, they need rebuke. They need to see the reality of their condition and be broken. Then they can embrace the reality of who Christ is and be redeemed. Blindness cannot change. People have to see the reality of who they are through the grid of God's presence. This is why starting with those things that we love to start with. You know, this week, they're so stubborn. If I could just get them to see the sovereignty of God. If you could get them to see the sovereignty of God, they wouldn't be stubborn. You've got to start with, let's look at why you're so stubborn. Let's look at what God exposes about your heart. Let's look at your belief system of what you think about God and life and existence. You have a belief system that the world revolves around you and that you should have what you want, when you want, how you want it, and you believe you deserve. Let's see what the scripture says about what you believe and contrary to what God says. And until there's a awareness and a brokenness and the person says, I can't believe I've been this bad. Yes, but let's look at how good God is because while you were yet a sinner, he chose to do these things. While you have been this way, he's never stopped loving you. You can't embrace the reality of how good he is until you come to terms with how ugly you really can be. And then there's a sense of humility. You remember what the scripture when uh, Jesus was talking to one of the Pharisees and he talked about whoever has sinned much, forgiven much and loves much. Many of us don't think that we're that bad. We've bought into a psychological view that's inconsistent with reality. And so we keep blaming the people, the past, the parents. We, We think that God, when it came to us, we were partially bad and God really just redeemed us. It's those other people. But you really are. I really am that bad. The gospel is only good news for wicked people. If that's offensive, then you've got some work to do. That makes sense. When we understand that, then we can see the glory of God. Boy, we really are that bad. That's why we needed a savior. But without that reality, it's everybody else. But with that reality, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Now, let's take that chart. Let's go a little bit deeper. Here's what I know about you, what I know about me. When we're operating out of selfish ambition, it gets deeper. So next chart shows us if you are not driven out of love but out of selfish ambition, then I know ultimately you're walking in pride. And what is pride ultimately? It's a mindset on self. It's self-centeredness. And the more you are walking in pride, you see the world, not through the grid of Christ, but through the grid of your emotions, your will, your desires, your expectations, your disappointments, your will. Watch this. You want God to be your life coach. You want to improve and, and be a better you. God is not interested in being your life coach. He's not interested in your self-development. He's interested in your death and your transformation into Christ-likeness. The world wants you to be better. God wants you to be like Christ. The world wants to coach you. God wants to transform you. The world wants you to focus in on self-improvement. God wants you to focus in on death and true life. Pride keeps you fueled with trying to live to please yourself. And if I know you're driven out of selfish ambition, that I know you're driven by pride. And that second word, and we're going to talk about this tomorrow night, the word lust there, most people when they hear lust, they think of sex. But lust is anything you want in life more than God. You're willing to sin to get it and sin when you don't get it. It's that desire that may in of itself not be bad, but you've made it evil because you've elevated it above love for God and love for others. And the more you're driven by selfish ambition, you are full of you, and there's a lot of desire for something that's way more important than anybody else. And watch this, you create idols. And what is an idol? We'll talk about this tomorrow night in detail. An idol is anything you look to, any person, any place, any product, any perspective, any platform that you can get to that will bring you what you treasure because life is all about you. And when I see that, I can tie your worry back to these three boxes. I can tie your anger back to these three boxes. I can tie your depression back to these three boxes. You show me where you're worried, I'll show you where you worship. You show me where you're angry, I'll show you where you worship. You show me where you're depressed, I'll show you where you worship. I didn't say sad, I said depression. Depression means there's hopelessness, there's a sense of guilt, there's deep sorrow. There's nothing wrong with deep sorrow but where there's hopelessness and a sense of guilt. You are in the flesh. And when you're in the flesh, you're not driven to please God. You're driven to please self. And we can trace it back to these three things. There's some pride. There's some lustful desires, some things you want more than anything else. And you have reduced any and everything in your life as a means to your end. As people are talking to me, they are exposing these things to me and don't even know they're exposing it to me. Because you cannot walk in selfish ambition and walk in humility at the same time. Where there's selfish ambition, there's pride, where there's pride, there are desires that you've turned into demands, and there are things that you are looking to to give it to you. That is a reality, guys. That will never change. And if you learn to just look at yourself first through this grid and take the last seven to 14 days and just walk through some of these things, the Spirit of God, by the Word, will help you see this clearly about yourself in many ways that you didn't even know. Part of my job as a shepherd, as a counselor, as a professor, as a friend, is to listen to people and help them to make these connections, to show them this is really what's happening with you. I'm not taking away from that person that's being mean. I'm not taking away from those external situations that are real. I'm not denying that, but that's not determining what's happening inside of you. What's happening inside of you is based upon how you have chosen to respond, and your responses are not driven by the Spirit of God because if it were, we'd be looking at love right now. We were looking at love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and meekness and faith and self-control, but I'm not seeing that in your life right now. I'm seeing the very opposite, which tells me you're not driven by the Spirit, you're driven by your flesh, which tells me you're driven by pride and your own agenda above God. But if you don't see what I see, what two words are you going to say to me after I tell you that? You're going to say, yeah, and then you're going to refer to, what are those six things? The, am I in your house yet? Am I on your street? Because the more we deny our hearts and are blind, the more we will use that and make excuses instead of the confessions. What's the good news? Finally, right? Some good news. Go to the last chart. Oh, I'm sorry. More bad news than the last chart. (laughs) All of what we just saw on the other chart really talks about what's happening in your heart. We're going to spend more time on this tomorrow night. But here's how it works. The heart of man is stirred up as he is bombarded with inordinate desires from indwelling sin waging war against the heart. That's where it starts. And then, secondly, Satan further stirs up sinful desires through the opportunities provided from the world's system and the world's wisdom. And then, step three whenever a man is hungry in his heart or hurting in his heart or does not come to Jesus, he pursues satisfaction of the heart or silence from the pain of the heart through feeling or feeding on lustful desires by acting on Satan's opportunities, leading man to his own destruction. This is what's happening all the time. And I'm spending time trying to expose these realities to people from the word of God. This is just James. This is just 2 John, love not the world. All we're doing is taking that and exposing the realities of this to people. Where do we take them? Final part for tonight, and I want to open the floor for a few questions from you guys or thoughts about it. This is where we're trying to take people. We're trying to guide them from pride to humility. Instead of feeding on their lustful desires, to feeding on love for God. Instead of walking in idolatry, walking in love for others. Instead of worry, embracing God. Instead of anger, accepting what God allows. Instead of depression, experiencing the peace of God. And it's doable. It's doable. It can happen. This could be a stable part of your life. But you've got to learn to see these things that I'm talking about. And you've got to accept the reality of them. And then change can happen. The moment you stop blaming the people in your life for your attitudes, then you can really have some change. Because they're not making you. They're exposing you. Now, this may sound weird to you, but because this is ingrained in my head, the moment you start talking to me, this stuff starts standing out to me as you're talking. And as I train people in this process, they get the same experience. As people are talking to them, it starts to just, it stands out. But before they can do it with other people, guess where I have them to start? You cannot give what you yourself do not have. This starts with us. And the more we can take ownership of this and watch God work, we guide people. This is not the solution. This is the picture. The solution is the same. Confess, repent, replace. But until people are ready to embrace this picture, this is the leaning no more on your own understanding, trusting the Lord with all your heart, giving them a biblical interpretation of their life existence. If they accept this and take ownership... Then the next step becomes easier of guiding people into confession, repentance, replacement through the power of God that we talked about earlier. This is why until people see, you're going to be futile in trying to help them change. And if they don't accept what you show them, it's going to be futile. And this is why I tell you when people have a lack of will, there's not much I can do lack of knowledge, lack of skill. We're going to expose these things. We're going to cry together. We're going to weep together. We're going to work through this together. I'm going to give my time, my energy, my life, everything I have to help them grow and change and work through these things together. I'm going to help them as they're embarrassed about it to show them, hey, listen, I understand you're embarrassed. I'm not going to tell you not to be embarrassed, but I'm going to tell you this. I've been exactly where you are. I've experienced what you've experienced. I'm here with you. Let's together see the power of God move in transformation. I'm not going to tell them to stop being sad. I'm going to come alongside of them and hold them and say, as you work through this, we're not just going to go through this together. We're going to grow through this together because God is with us, and this is a wonderful opportunity for change, and he is going to do something because he promised he would according to his word. We're going to move together down the road, but that stubborn person that still wants to yeah, but be and blame everything else, I'm going to pray with them and again, go home and watch the text. Because there's nothing I can do. All right, we're going to stop here for tonight. I want to open the floor for any questions or comments you have, anything that's on your heart. What are you thinking? What are you seeing? So what? That's my question to you. Any questions or comments? No question is a dumb question. No comment is a dumb comment. What's on your mind? Someone has to be the first. Come on, don't be bashful. Break the ice. All right, that room is looking good to me. with somebody who is already feeling broken and depressed and so um, weighed down by the world and their own, like they already see themselves as a bad person. Um, but because of that, they feel like they can't, uh, they can't accept God's love or like God is not loving because of all of these things that have happened to them. They're not broken. That's a pity party. The brokenness is I'm ready to change. A pity party is, and think about what they're saying. Christ died for all, and Christ's propitiation is for any. But they're saying they're so bad that he won't accept them, or they're so bad that he has to reject them. What they are exposing is how they treat other people and in their pride and arrogance, they have reduced God to themselves. And so I know that if I were to treat someone this way, this is what I would do, so surely this is how God is treating me. That's not a uh, brokenness, that's a pity party that's built upon a pride and a low view of God and a high view of themselves. Now, I'm not going to tell them that up front, so please hear me. okay? We're going to work our way around. I'm going to do parables, and I'm going to do a a Nathan to David thing. I'm going to do all kinds of things to help them see that, not just up front. You know what? You're just a prideful individual, and you're having a... I'm not going to do that. I'm teaching you that way, but I would work in certain ways to help them to see the reality of their view of themselves and what God says is true, and we're going to slowly help them see how there's a disconnect between their pity and the love that God has. Because until that happens, their problem isn't brokenness. I think I'm all of that in a bag of chips. And now I'm shocked that I'm not as good as I think I am. And I can't let go of what I think about myself to see the reality of God. So I got to reduce God to my level. That's what's happening in those situations. Does that make sense? But we slowly, again, we're not going to punch him in the face. We're not going to beat him over the head, but slowly help them see that reality. And then they could see true brokenness. Make sense? Anybody else? Questions? Thanks for asking. Yes, sir. Tell me what's on your mind, little man. What's your name? Caleb. Yes, sir.
1: What's neutral?
0: Neutral. That's a good question. Neutral is something that is not right or wrong in the sight of God. Okay? So let's say one of your friends tickle you and you laugh. Okay? Or let's say... One of your friends scare you and you jump because that scares you. That's not right or wrong. That's a neutral response. Now, if you do something mean to your friend after they do that, like you go punch him or something like that, then you went from that which is in the middle to that which is wrong. Does that make sense? You get it? You sure? Because I can break it down another way unless you tell me. You got it? Okay. All right. Good question. Anybody else? Yes, sir. And then back there with you, sir.
1: How do you explain the verse, um, bad company corrupts good character? If those six things, we can't blame anything on those six things, in the past people, the other things. How do you explain that verse?
0: With Because I'm hanging around you and I choose to allow you to influence me, I choose to become corrupt. That's the weakness of my own soul. So the bad company corrupts good morals because I'm liking being around you. So therefore, whatever you do, I want to do. So if I adjust and change, knowing that that is a flaw in my character, I need to guard myself from that by getting around other types of people. But it's still my decision because I'm allowing you to influence. Because what happens when I don't like you anymore? What happens to your company with me? Or what happens when, let's say, I've got greater consequences than I want to handle, then we're no longer hanging around each other anymore? Okay? Does that answer it? OK. Yes, sir. You know, as I've listened
1: to you twice now, I'm surprised that you use the term feudal. In your messages so far, you talk about how you want to bring about this change, but I've heard you say that with certain individuals, it's futile. Do you really mean that? What, what I did mean you is, just oh, say? You said that when it's futile, you do something and then you watch the game. What did you say?
0: Yeah, what I'm saying is when people are stubborn and unwilling to change, there's not anything that I could do because I can't control them changing. So what I mean by futile is that practically, if you're not willing to listen to what God says and you're going to be stubborn and do your own thing, there's not anything else I can give you. So at that point, what I mean by futile is it doesn't make sense for me to keep talking to you because God has to do something that I cannot do. Because if it's one thing I can never do with an individual, I can't make them listen to me. I can't make them change. I can't make them confess. I can only facilitate. So, if a person is standing on something and they're not going to change, and that's where they are, there's not anything I can do. So, that's what I mean by the idea of futile. Does that make sense?
1: Does that level with the Great Commission? Say it again? How does that level with the co- Great Commission that Christ did? We is-
0: We're called to go. That's, great question. Turn in your Bible. I want you to see that. I'm going to answer it through scripture, not through my words. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'm going to read this passage to you. 1 Corinthians 3. Let's go to verse 5. And I'm going to just read. And then you're going to see the answer to that question, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. He says, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted Apollo's water, but God was causing the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. So the great commission is, I am faithful to share the gospel. I can't determine the outcome, but if someone gets saved, now I'm faithful to walk them through discipleship as they choose to listen. But at any moment they reject, it's not on me. Let me give you another example. Turn to 2 Timothy. Let's go to chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I want you to look at uh, verse 24. Let's read that together. 2 Timothy 2.24, he says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. But kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps you, by your skill, will bring them to repentance. If perhaps who? God may grant them repentance, lead them to the knowledge of truth, and they may come to their senses because you kept showing them and telling them and trying to make them, is that what it says? That God may bring them to their senses. So the point is, I've got to understand where my responsibility begins and ends. And if a person is not willing to accept the reality of what God says, there's nothing I can do. If they're willing to accept the reality of what God says, then I keep doing what I'm doing from evangelism to now discipleship. However, that's always in the hand of God and the heart of that person. Because if any moment I believe I'm responsible for the salvation of souls or the sanctification of souls... I put a lot of responsibility on myself that doesn't belong to me. But I am responsible for evangelism and discipleship as people are willing to listen. So that's kind of, if you look at that biblically, that's where we're headed when I say it's futile. Does that make sense? Yes, no? (laughs) All right. Anybody else? Any other questions or thoughts? Any comments? Anything that's on your mind? Go on once. Yes.
1: There was a question posed by uh, someone I was sitting next to, and I thought it was a really good question, and I gave an answer, but I'm not the expert, so I want to hear you. I'm not the expert either. (laughs) Well, I don't. You know your son better than me. (laughs) No, but good. I don't have a doctor in front of my name.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That gets me in trouble every time. (laughs) Um.
1: The, you talked about expectations such as in a marriage, and the question was posed, what about biblical expectations such as expecting my wife or, or my husband to be faithful? And then what if they're not? Why, what is, is it wrong to have expectations for your spouse?
0: I was wondering when was somebody going to ask that question? Expectations are not the problem. It's the worship of your expectations. See, for most of us, we live by our expectations instead of living to please God with our spouse. And that becomes a challenge. There's Nothing wrong with me expecting anything from my spouse, but can I control my spouse doing anything according to Scripture? Now, I can say all day long, the Bible says you're supposed to do this, and I will be absolutely right. But can I control if they will or if they will not? The only thing I can control is if I'm willing to submit to God myself and live to please God by playing the role that God called me to play. So there's nothing wrong with expectations, but the problem is we use them as excuses for our own disobedience and say, well, if they're not, then why should I? Because if you are living by the covenant that God has set, your goal is to live to please God. And here's the problem that we will discover in any marriage, in any situation with expectations. If I live more by my expectations, then I'm showing my own character deficiencies. Because what I'm saying is... My relationship with you is contingent upon what you will or will not do. So I'm spending all my time focusing on how you should be doing what the scripture says, which means I'm being irresponsible in what God has called me to do in the scriptures. So the more we understand that, I tell people, your problem is not that you have expectations. You worship your expectations. You live as if they must because you expect People operate with you the way they operate with God, out of where they are in their character, not out of what you want. And if we were to deal with people according to their character, not according to our expectations, we would lower our expectations according to their character. Because too often what we want from people exceeds where they are in their character. That's why we're always frustrated. But we don't even understand how selfish that is. Does that make sense? I want so much, and the Bible says it's valid for me to want this. Yes, but the reality is what you want and who this person is does not match. And guess what? You don't have the power to force them or to fix them. So now what will you do to the glory of God in that situation? And therein lies the challenge for so many people because they're challenging the validity of expectations versus the worship of their expectations and the inconsistency in their own obedience that make sense? Yeah. Anybody else? Any questions or thoughts about this? Yes, sir.
1: Um, <clears throat> I was just, uh, I guess a quick question would be, when you first are trying to get the beam out of your own eye and trying to go through all these charts and assess and see just how... Uh, Sinful and selfish. Your, my desires are. Um, where do you, where do you begin? Because it's very overwhelming when you think of it. Yes. And you go through just your typical day, driving, at work, talking to anybody, thinking about anything, <laughs> and you just get myself at least gets really burdened with that thought, or just. So I guess. Um, I guess I'm just asking what would be, um, like a, a, just a practical way to efficiently get the beam out of your own eye so you can not hypocritically, um, be very tender in those moments when, you know, people need you, but you're still, you know, Mm -hmm. critically wounded yourself. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if it makes any sense.
0: The first step in all steps, I tell people, this is where not just random Bible study and random meditation happens. People get bored with their devotions because they're not doing devotions according to their character problems. If I'm struggling with anger, what do you think I should be studying a lot of scripture about? Anger. What should a lot of my research be on and how should I be focusing in? This is how we take every thought captive. This is how we are transformed. This is how we take that word of I hid in the heart that I might not sin against Thee. If that's my area, I need to be spending a lot of time there and then evaluating. Guess what? The Spirit's going to do? Going to begin to bring that back within those situations. What we fail to do a lot of saints is we don't prepare for the day; we react to the day. If I know this is an area for me that's a problem. My devotions, my meditation time, my memorization of scripture should be all in those areas. So before I get out the door, I'm prepared for what's going to happen because it tends to happen from the same people at the same time consistently. But I keep acting the same way. Why? Because I haven't changed my thought processes. I haven't prepared. If you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. So you have to think differently and prepare differently, and then you will do differently. And as saints, that's what our quiet time was meant to be about, taking that and looking at our character deficiencies and saying, okay, I have a problem with stubbornness. Let me look at what the Bible says about stubbornness. Let me study some characters and what God did with them in stubbornness. What would God want me to process and think about? As you confess that and count on God's forgiveness, then you start thinking about what is the opposite way? So instead of focusing on not being angry or not being stubborn, you focus on how to be thankful and how to give of yourself. And you start putting yourself to say, this day with that person, I know this is how they're going to come to me, but by God's power, this is how I'm going to demonstrate love to them this week. And the more you do that, you will discover that that issue, you won't be perfect, but you will sin less. You won't be sinless, but you will sin less. And you'll be more consistent because you've replaced it with that item that God would have you to replace it with as you're preparing Daily. You know, we used to, did you ever lift weights? A little bit. You remember, you didn't just walk into the weight room and just start lifting weights. You had to stretch, you had to get yourself together, and then you would do it. It's the same thing in the Christian life. Our stretching is the meditation, the preparation, the renewing, the scripture saying, okay, this is a problem in my life. God has given me the power to do this on top of this. And the focus is not don't think about pink elephants, because guess what happens when I tell you don't think about pink elephants? But what if I tell you think about green elephants all day? What happens to the pink elephants? See, The key is not to stop something. The key is to start something and to prepare your mind in the process and confess and repent. That's the Christian life, the put off, put on. But again, if we just focus on true grit instead of the grace that God gave us, it's not going to happen. So it's preparation, study, spending time in those areas. If, like I tell, I told one guy, you're in the book of Leviticus when you need to be in the book of James. I know Leviticus is fascinating and it's a lot to study, <laughs> but you need in the book of James according to where your heart issues are. Does that make sense? And learning how not just to read it to read it, but to read it for memorization, to read it for change, for confessing, repenting. Lord, if this is my specific sin, teach me the specific obedient thing to do in replacement and having others to come alongside of you, and that's how you begin the process and change in those areas. Okay? Does that make sense? And that's a lifestyle, not an event. As soon as you start to mature in one area, then what happens? So That's why it's a lifestyle. Okay? Anybody else? Questions or... Comments about anything. Yes, sir.
1: Uh, what do you tell your, your church family or give advice on when to seek counsel? Like, I thought, do you how, how far do you let a problem
0: go before you seek, uh, seek it out? I really don't have an answer for that because I think for different people it varies. Uh, I just encourage people to seek counseling anytime they feel like they can't handle the issue on their own, if through the insight that they've been getting from Sunday school or worship or from others, they can't apply the truth for change and it's, they're feeling they're counterproductive, I would say it's time to get counsel to help you work it through. You know, and part of what I try to do in the congregation is teach people how to live these principles. So I do a lot of preaching and teaching through these principles to show them how to apply it so that they have to come to me less and less. And they can apply it more and more. Because here's the thing. Uh, There are seven basic principles that if we really learned, a lot of counseling wouldn't be necessary. Um, If I learned how to confess on a consistent basis, I would experience God's forgiveness on a consistent basis. 1 John 1.9, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse you. Uh, If I learned a lot about how to repent, to turn away from things, I can expect to get the mercy of God. Proverbs twenty eight thirteen says... He who covers his sins will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. The more I have a habitual pattern of owning up and turning away, I get the cleansing, the compassion, and forgiveness of God. Scripture tells us, Be not conformable, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. If I spend a lot of my time renewing my mind in the areas where there are troubles, God is going to transform my thinking. If I spend a lot of time Looking at my life and saying, with the family, what are some of the things that we need to focus on practicing for the next 30 days by the power of God, or the next three months? If we spent time there, putting that to practice, so many problems that we have, we would be handling through that process that we wouldn't need to come for counseling a lot or to others. But that means that we've got to learn the disciplines of the Christian faith, and not just learn them, but live them in practice as a family that makes sense? And then accountability would bring along a lot of, a lot of things. Hey, anybody else? Questions, thoughts, comments, criticisms, you name it. I love criticisms. They're fun. I'll tell you this. One lady said to me, I think you're arrogant. I think you're being narrow-minded, and you don't know what you're talking about. I said, wow. I said, ma'am, can you tell me why you think I'm arrogant, narrow-minded, and don't know what I'm talking about? You talk about biblical counseling, and you said that that's the way for Christians. And I went to a therapist, and it worked for me. I said, well, ma'am, can you define what you mean by it worked? She said, I feel better. I said, so ma'am, if I gave you some liquor in a joint, would you also feel better? And her eyes got big. I said, I'm being facetious. The point is, the goal is not to feel better. It's to become better. Maybe I'm not being narrow-minded. Maybe I'm being single-minded. Maybe God wants to hurt your feelings to build your character. She didn't like me much after that. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody else before we call it a night? Yes, sir. Have you? No, no. Go ahead. (laughs) I'm just messing with you, brother. Go ahead. Um, My question has to do
1: with righteous anger. Has, have you had an experience where someone came in and said, hey, it was out of righteous anger? Do you have a definition of that, or is, is Jesus Christ the only one that's capable of that? or is, How does when that you, work for human beings?
0: So Ephesians 4.29 and Ephesians 4.31, be angry and do not sin, righteous indignation. Okay? The anger that Jesus had, he was angry about the things that angered God, but he handled it according to to the right perspective, right? So you look at Moses. Moses is an example of righteous indignation and sinful anger. When he went into uh, the mountains to spend time with the Lord, and he came back and they were worshiping the calves, the golden calf, what did he do with the tablets? He was angry, wasn't he? Righteous indignation. God had no problem with that. He handled it accordingly. But when he spoke to the people and hit the rock, he was also angry. That was sinful anger. It became personal. See, righteous indignation is not personal. And the Bible tells us in James chapter one, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. If it's truly righteous indignation, you will accomplish the righteousness of God. Let's say you and I see uh, some elderly people being beat or hurt. Righteous indignation would cause us to get those people protect them to make sure nothing happens to them. And if necessary, we may have to handle those people just a little bit to get them along the way. But if we don't deal with that before the day goes down, then it turns into something else. This is what we see in the culture because the culture, for many of the things that are happening, they are angry, but because they don't have the spirit of God, that which is righteous turns into something evil because they can't govern it the appropriate way. Where sinful anger, I'm getting something I don't want, or I'm not getting what I want, and I'm having a temper tantrum. So that's the difference between the two. But here's the sad reality very few times are we walking in righteous indignation. But it happens. So hopefully that gives you a big picture. Does that make sense? Okay. Anybody else? Questions, thoughts?
1: Yes, sir. Uh, I want to circle back real quick to that uh, expectations question. Yes, sir. And just because I'm trying to parse it out in my own mind. And, uh, you know, going back to, uh, you know, Matthew 18, where it talks about, you know, going to your brother if he sinned against you, those kind of things. And
0: obviously, you know, we have our own motivations, but there seems to be at least an expectation there that as a believer and another believer... If there is sin there, you would want to
1: confront them. But how do you know where that line is between it's your, your own selfish desire?
0: You might be the only person who knows. It, like the uh, example he gave was marriage. So, you know, how do you work through that? you got to distinguish between clear sin and personal preferences. When the Bible tells me to confront someone, it's about what the Bible defines as sin. But normally, when we confront somebody, it's because of our personal preferences. And where there's arrogance is when I elevate my preferences to God's standards. Let me give you an example. Scripture says, Study to show thyself approved. The workman need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That is a precept, right? That is God's command. But what if I said to you, and brother, if you're not studying the original languages at least three times a day, You're not studying the Bible, and I'm going to confront you about it. What did I just do now? I took my application of a standard, made it a standard, and then had the nerve to confront you about an application that I created from the standard. We have to make sure that we're not confronting people out of our own personal applications and telling them they're wrong versus a precept that God says is the standard. That's how you make the difference. And I have had to counsel many people to say, this person hadn't sinned against you. They just haven't done it your way. And one of the examples of that in the Bible is if you look at the book of Acts. You remember when Paul and Barnabas wanted to take that second missionary journey? And then Barnabas said, let's take John Mark with us again. The Bible says a sharp disagreement arose amongst them. And what I find fascinating, I teach my students this, I sit now A sharp disagreement arose between Paul and Barnabas, and they split. So let me ask you guys a question. Who was right? Was Paul right or was Barnabas right? And I do it on purpose, and it stirs up a fight in the class. And I say to them, welcome to the world of preference. Neither one of them were wrong. It was a preference, but when you make your preference the standard for everybody else, you will tell them they're wrong over a preference the first fight I had in my marriage was over washing clothes. I was washing clothes. My wife came downstairs and she was, I thought she was there to say, oh, look at my lovely husband washing clothes. She was spectating to see if I was doing it right. And she said, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean? What am I doing? I'm washing clothes. She says, well, you're doing it wrong. I said, maybe you've been doing it wrong. And like a Lionel Richie song all night long, Reference. Neither one of us was wrong, but in our arrogance, we attacked each other as if our way was the way and the other person needed to change. That's how you can tell. And that's very important. You have to really know, okay, what am I coming to this person about? They disappointed my expectations. Okay. But did they sin against me? So when someone tells me I'm hurt, that's a big word. So I'll say to them, okay, let's clarify what you mean by hurt. Did this person sin against you according to what scripture defines as sin, or did this person disappoint your expectations? Because you feel the hurt from either one. Okay, if they disappointed your expectations, they didn't sin against you, it's time for you to maybe reevaluate your expectations. Maybe you want this too much because you're bitter and angry about it, and they didn't sin against you. They just didn't give you what you wanted. Whereas, okay, the Bible clearly defines that as sin. Matthew 18 tells us, first, you need to deal with your heart attitude before you go to them. Let's deal with your unloving attitudes about how they've mishandled you. And as you've dealt with that, then we can go to them in love, according to Matthew 18, and begin to address the sin issue. So hopefully, I've gone the long way around, but I hope that gives you kind of a clarity of how to think about that. Does that make sense? All right. All right, we got time for two more Yes
1: Who won the fight?
0: My wife. <laughs> that was an easy answer. My wife won that one. So guess how I washed the clothes the way she washed the clothes, right? But I gave it my college try. I, I mean, I stood in there for a while and but... She won. (laughs) All right, one more before we call it a night. One more, anybody. Question, comment, concern, criticism, you name it. It's your night. Whatever you want. Going once. Going twice. All right, gang. Have a wonderful evening, and I will see you, Lord willing, tomorrow night. God bless you guys. Thank you.